Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. On the top of the hill in Washington, D.C. stands the Capitol building of our country. And if you know anything about history, the cornerstone was laid in 1793, but the crowning touch is actually the statue that is on top of the rotunda. It is known as the Freedom Lady, and you can see it up top, way up at the tippy top there. It was placed there in 1863. Now the Freedom Lady, she stands nearly 20 feet tall and stands up there proudly atop the dome. There's a crest of stars that frames her face and a shield of stars and stripes in her left hand. And the statue was actually sculptured in Rome and the Freedom Lady was brought to America aboard a sailing ship. But during the trip across the Atlantic Ocean, a powerful, powerful storm developed. And as they were struggling in the ocean, the captain ordered that all the normal cargo be thrown overboard just to lighten up that load. Well, the sailors, they wanted something else. They wanted to throw out this heavy, heavy statue known as freedom overboard to lighten the load. But the captain, he absolutely refused and he shouted out over the wind, no, never, we will never throw her out. We will flounder before we throw freedom away. The statue stands above the dome today because one man stood for freedom. And I think this describes perfectly for us what we find when we come to Galatians chapter 1, where we see in verse 6 that Paul is standing for freedom. Because the truth that underlines our text for this morning is that there is only one gospel. And if you give up on the liberty of Jesus Christ, if you give up on the gospel of Jesus Christ, you no longer have freedom. We start our wonderful text in verse 6 where Paul tells the churches of Galatia, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a what? Different gospel. Now, if you miss the strong wording of this text, if you miss the, the strong, strong, powerful words that Paul uses, you're actually missing the message itself. He says, I marvel. I am amazed. I am astonished. I mentioned to you guys last week how notable it is that Paul did not give thanks to God for the Christians he was writing to. Every one of his other epistles contains this. Even the immoral church of Corinth, Paul gave thanks to God for them. But Paul was not in a mood to give thanks on this occasion. He was astonished that these brand new converts that he had just left behind on the missionary trail months before had defected, turned away from the gospel of Christ. Turning away here in the text or deserting was a military word that was used to describe when a soldier deserted the army. Now, Paul, you remember, he had just left them and the legalists, they moved in right after. And it wasn't only the gospel that they were leaving behind. Read verse six again. What does it say? You are turning away so soon from him, from him who called you in the grace 
of Christ. You see, they were turning from God himself to follow after a false gospel. God had called them in grace. These were believers that had been called by the grace of God to salvation. And they were just starting. The Greek indicates this. They were just starting to turn away from God, turning away present tense. They were responsible for their own defection and the process was not yet complete. It would be like making the decision to leave your home and move to Fairbanks. You've made the decision, but you're in the driveway yet, packing. They hadn't gotten to Fairbanks just yet. These people were beginning to turn away, turning away from God's grace, turning away to embrace a different gospel, to a gospel, it says, of a different kind, a gospel that's not based on God's grace. Now, this same lie happens every day in the church today. When churches tell new believers that, yes, accept Christ, but you also have to obey our rules. You have to prove how much you're worth to us. You have to earn God's love. And then if you're good enough, God will accept you. Paul stood amazed at how soon they had turned their backs on the grace of God. Verse 7 which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. There is no other gospel. That is the teaching of verse 7. There is no other gospel. You see, men always, always will come along, cause trouble, and pervert the grace of God because faith plus anything is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the same. It makes me think of 2 Corinthians 11.3, where Paul said, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Grace is always, always under attack, but a lot of times God's people don't even recognize it. Those that lead men astray, they should know better because they know the words of the gospel message and they just sort of twist them. They pervert them, distort them, attempting to turn God's grace into a legalistic set of rules whereby men can earn the favor of God. It is faith alone in Christ alone that saves and any other message will lead a person to damnation. And that is why Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. And that is why on the Sermon on the Mount, Christ said in Matthew 5, he said, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Christ was telling them that you cannot do it on your own. It's impossible. Your righteousness is never going to get you there. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed into you, and that can only come by faith. And any message that depends on works rather than the grace of God is a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And believer, you have a responsibility. I'm talking to you, Christians. You have a responsibility to clean up the message of grace that you speak to other people. Because the words that you use can confuse and cause trouble for other people. Here's the gospel message. It's pretty simple. Saving faith is the belief in Jesus Christ as the son of God who died and rose again to pay one's personal penalty for sin and the one who gives eternal life to all who trust him and him alone for it. 
Memorize this. It's included in your bulletin today. Any five-year-old child can memorize it. It's such a simple message. It is the simplicity of Jesus Christ. But I hear a lot of gospel messages that have nothing to do with the gospel of Christ. It is, and I do not mean to offend when I say this, but it is not the gospel of Christ to say, I ask Jesus into my heart. Yes, Christ lives in his people, but that's not the message, friends. It's not. Some teach that you have to turn from your sins before you can be saved. I'm sorry, but that is impossible. No lost person can do this. It's like getting cleaned up in order to take a bath. Or as one of my good friends likes to say, Jesus catches the fish before he cleans them. There's an old story from the 18th century of King Frederick II, the king of Prussia. And he was visiting a prison in Berlin. The inmates tried to prove to him how each of them had unjustly been put in prison. All except for one man. He just sat there quietly in the corner while all the rest were sitting there just protesting their innocence. Seeing him sitting there, oblivious to the commotion, the king asked him, he said, what are you here for? Armed robbery, your honor. Well, the king then asked, he said, are you guilty? And he said, yes, sir, he answered, I entirely deserve my punishment. And the king then gave the order to the guard, release this guilty man. I don't want him corrupting all these innocent people. What I want you to understand is that inherent in the gospel of Christ itself is the understanding that God brings the people he is drawing to himself to an awareness of their guilt. But the gospel is receiving God's grace and having the opportunity to start over with a new life in him. Then and only then, by his strength, by his grace, his power living in us, Christ living in us, can the believer begin to turn from their sin. Then and only then can the new Christians begin to live out their condition in their life, the righteousness that Christ has given us in position when we came to new life in him. See, a lost person cannot turn from their sin until Christ lives in them. And once a person has been saved by God's grace, then they can start to live in God's grace. Grace is to be the foundation of the Christian life. But when you turn away from the grace of God, you're attempting to live under your own power. And when you do this, you're going to find out that you can't and your life is going to start to spiral downhill pretty fast because you're relying at that point on your own strength instead of the grace of God and the power of Christ in us. If you try to live apart from the grace of God, you're going to fail. I'm just sorry, but you will. And your life is going to look like a complete train wreck. And actually, Paul's going to say this. He's going to say something to the same effect in Galatians 5, 4, where he says, you've become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You see, Paul is telling them, don't quit. Don't quit depending on the grace of God. You can almost picture Paul back in Antioch listening in stunned silence to the reports that the churches of Galatia were turning away from God, turning away from the grace of Jesus Christ. It was shocking then. It's shocking today when people do it, that God's people would turn away from God's grace. But it's even worse, he says in verse 8. 
But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you've received, let him be accursed. These are some of the most misunderstood words in the entire epistle. Here's what this means. Paul is telling the new Christians that it didn't matter who told them some other message, even if it was Paul, even if it was your favorite preacher or your favorite author or your favorite whatever, even if it's an angel from heaven, if it's a message that is different from the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, you should treat that person as under God's curse. I'm sorry, that's just how it is. Paul even includes himself. That means he means it. He means it. He's saying, even if he came back to them 10 years from now, preaching a different gospel message than what he first taught them at the beginning, Paul himself was even to be judged. It should be understand that Paul is saying, let them be under the curse of God. Let them be under the judgment of God. And I believe that the most natural understanding of this text is that it is referring to God's judgment here and now. And certainly this means for anyone outside of Jesus Christ, God's eternal judgment and condemnation in the future. This meant that the churches of Galatia, they should no longer support these men. Notice in verse 9, these new believers had received the gospel message. He's talking to believers. They had faith in Christ, but now they were being led astray. You see, Paul told them it didn't matter. It didn't matter who these legalistic men claimed to be. It didn't matter if even the angels came down from heaven. If it doesn't line up with the message of God's amazing grace, let them be under God's curse. Now, according to Joseph Smith, an angel appeared to him. This was the beginning of the Mormons. According to Muhammad, an angel appeared to him and gave him the teachings of the Quran. But their message is not what Paul taught. If angels did appear to them, they would have been fallen angels, meaning to deceive and enslave man. But this text here says an angel from heaven, doesn't it? That's not a demon. That's not a demon. Paul extends the curse even to angels from heaven if one were to preach a different gospel. Strong language. Why is it so strong, Paul? For a reason. And that is why Paul repeats it in verse 9. Strong wording because Paul believed in the gospel of Christ. Paul is telling them and reminding them that he believed in grace. And he's reminding them that when Barnabas and Paul first came to them preaching Jesus Christ, they gave this warning back then. Now they were giving it again. There's a message here for the church today, and I hope you see it, to not be impressed with the outward qualifications of anyone. Listen to their words. Listen to what they teach. And if it doesn't stand the test of God's grace, reject it and quit supporting them. The standard of judgment must be the message of redemptive grace. Do you hear that? The standard of judgment must be the message of redemptive grace because no foundation for salvation can be laid other than the person and redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, let me say it like this. Anything that adds works to the message of the grace gospel is opposed to the true gospel of Christ. And anyone that preaches a mixture of grace plus works is worthy of God's judgment because a teacher of God's word who requires others to obey the law or do good works in order to be saved is leading others down a path to eternity without Christ. 
I'd like you to think of a thorny plant, a plant that maybe it's just out growing in our ditch. And one day a gardener comes alongside with his shovel and he digs up this plant. And the gardener, he digs around it very carefully. He's gently lifting it out of the ground. And the plant is sitting there trying to figure out what is happening because he's being moved. He's wondering if the gardener knew that he was just a worthless, thorny bush. But the gardener, he carefully takes this bush and he places it in his garden anyway. In fact, the gardener takes this thorny bush and plants it by his most beautiful rose bushes. And again, the thorny bush is sitting there wondering to himself what this man is doing, thinking that he's made some sort of mistake. But then the gardener does something even more unexpected. He comes to this plant again and makes a slit in a thorny plant with his knife and he grafts it with a rose. And when the summer comes to an end, there are beautiful flowers coming from the thorny plant, a plant that before had none. And this is when the gardener explains to the plant, hear me, your beauty is not because of what came out of you, but because of what I put in. Hear those words. Do you hear those words? Because that is what God is telling us in the New Testament. Your beauty is not because of what came out of you, but because of what I put in. You see, when we think of conversion, regeneration, new birth, if it's something that is coming out of us, if it's something we can do on our own, then that is works-based salvation. But if it's something because of the Creator that He's put in us, the righteousness of Christ, the new life in Christ, something given to us, even though we don't deserve us, well, then what is that? That's grace. This is becoming a new creation in Christ. And the man that has been regenerated by Christ has forever ceased to be the man he once was. His old life is completely over and a new life has begun. Condemnation, if you are a believer in Christ, condemnation can no longer reach you. But this birth, it didn't start with us. No birth does. And that's the whole point of Paul's case here. He authenticated his gospel and his ministry to the Gentile Christians in Galatia. Grace doesn't come from man. It comes from the master who has planted us in his beautiful garden. Now, Paul knew his words were going to offend. He knew that. And so look at what he says next in verse 10. He says, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The servant of the gospel seeks to please God and God alone, not men. There are times when we are going to have to reject the easy path in life to follow after God. And I think Paul is explaining to us that when we water down the message just to please men, we're no longer serving God. But Paul's strong warnings did not seem to have a lasting impact beyond one generation of believers. Because if you look at church history from 100 AD and forward, the message of grace seems to have fallen through the cracks. You see, other than the Bible, other than the scriptures, the earliest Christian literature we have is the Shepherd of Hermas, written about 100 to 120 AD. Never once in this work does it mention salvation by faith or by grace. It mentions salvation by doing good and by water baptism. 
The teaching in this early work is legalistic all throughout. It speaks of a system of good works and the atonement of sin by being a martyr for the faith. Nothing is mentioned of justification by faith, but water baptism was now seen already at this point as indispensable for salvation. This book had a large reach in the early church and it didn't get any better. Justin Martyr followed on the heels of Hermas and saw water baptism as a means of obtaining regeneration. His words, the labor of repentance is baptism, the only thing which is able to cleanse those who have repented. But Paul never mentioned anything about baptism as a requirement for salvation, did he? He mentions only one thing, faith in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is how man is justified. Jesus called it new birth. Paul says we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. People who have simply received the free gift of God, making us a new creation, the new birth comes by faith. Nothing mankind can do can change the heart. And that is why rules never work. It doesn't matter. You can list it all out all you want, but rules will never work. Justification, though, it gives us a new nature. And then we learn to walk according to God's grace. But being justified before God, it has nothing to do with the choices that we make after our birth. This is where people today in the church have gotten off track and gotten confused. See, justification is only our spiritual birth. Sanctification comes after our daily walk of faith. And part of that learning that comes after is that we do not live to please men. You see, Paul is now showing why he was willing to be so bold for the gospel, why he was willing to talk this way. Because when the gospel of Jesus Christ is distorted, it diminishes the glory of Christ. When the gospel of Christ is twisted, distorted, the sufficiency of Christ's work, it's completely dishonored. And the way to salvation for sinners is closed off by legalistic men. And so Paul stood Paul stood on God's grace. Paul would oppose any distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether it would make people happy or not. Now, it was being said, it was being said that Paul was teaching freedom from the Jewish law to the Gentiles just so that he could gain a crowd, just so that he could win as many converts as he could. But notice his words. He says, do I now persuade men are God or do I seek to please men? He's saying, read it again. Read what I wrote again and then ask whose approval I'm seeking. He didn't just stand up and tell people what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear. And that's why he would later write to the church of Corinth. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. His message, it always, always, always centered on faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. There could be no compromise because the truth, it stood on its own. It was the legalistic men, if you think about it, it was the legalistic men that came after Paul that were attempting to please men by mixing the law and grace together, hoping to please both Jews and Gentiles, but never asking whether or not they were pleasing God. You know, that's the irony of this text. Paul was being accused of living to please men, but calling for God to judge those who perverted the gospel. That's not the actions of someone that is just trying to gain a crowd. See, if Paul wanted popularity, if Paul wanted to just get a crowd, he should have stayed a Pharisee and a promoter of the law rather than become a servant of Jesus Christ. 
Paul was an ambassador for Christ, not a politician. And if relationships had to be damaged, if bridges needed to be burned, Paul, I think, was actually willing to pay that price because he knew that the gospel of Christ is worth fighting for. And what Paul what Paul faced, what people thought of him, it didn't bother him because he lived for a different purpose. And I would say he lived for a purpose that few find in the church today. He lived for the glory of Christ. He lived for the good of those yet to believe the gospel. Paul was willing to speak the truth, even if it won him very few friends. Now, I would say to you guys this morning this, this should be a liberating truth. Because it frees us if we live like Paul. And here's what I mean. If we live to please others in our lives, then our lives will become a tangled, tangled mess. Because everywhere we turn, then our lives, we are trying to end up pleasing others constantly. But when we only live to please Jesus Christ, it simplifies things. It helps us to live with integrity. It helps us to live with purpose. You see, every decision that you make in your life can be boiled down to this one purpose. Does it please Jesus Christ? Christians, I watch Christians all the time and they get all bent out of shape all the time about making decisions. And even fewer today can learn to make decisions that honor God. But this simple verse, this simple verse right here should transform your thinking. It comes down to the question, who am I living to please? Should we watch this movie? Should we read this book? Should we spend money on something? Should you take a job? Should you go out on a date? Should you marry this person or that person? All these things boil down to one question, to living with the understanding that there is one person that we are to live to please with every single decision that we make in life. See, every day we make these choices. Sometimes this means that when we live to please him, well, it's not going to please others. And that hurts. That does hurt. But let me tell you that the joy of learning to live a single-minded life that is pleasing to Christ, it's completely worth it. As Paul said in Philippians 3, he said, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was living for the day when he would stand before the Savior at the judgment seat of Christ. On June 1st of 1953, a boy named David was born in New York. David had a very troubled childhood. You can see, looking back at his life, a trail of anger and violence, depression. And when he was 22 years old, he met some guys at a party who were heavily involved in the occult. David wrote that he'd always been fascinated with witchcraft, Satanism, and the occult. He developed a passion for this by watching horror movies and satanic thrillers. David said that as he watched these movies, it, they captivated his mind. And now he was 22 and he said that an evil force was reaching out to him. Everywhere he went, things were pointing him to Satan. He felt as if something were trying to actually take control of his life. So David began to read the satanic Bible. Then he began to practice occult rituals and incantations. Eventually, he crossed the line of no return. He became the criminal, the outward manifestation of these dark inner thoughts. Eventually, David would use a gun to take the lives of six young women. And he wrote letters to the media and the police taunting them and explaining how Sam, a demon, was instructing him to kill 
Finally, in 1977, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, was arrested and sentenced to 365 years in prison. Now, when David entered Attica prison, a man by the name of Robert Alexander was there as a prison guard. Robert told his encounters with the son of Sam, and here's what he said. He said, I saw this struggle with the occult forces that plagued him. Have you ever looked into the face of evil? David scared me spiritually. I wasn't a Christian, but I could see the effect the occult had on David. He struggled, but was unable to control the demons within him. Robert saw the letters David would receive from the satanic worshipers that would write to him. And he said, over a period of two years, I saw David slip into satanic despair and torment. He would howl. He would just sit and howl as he surrounded himself with pornography. And he digressed out of control. But David was transferred eventually to another prison. And there the Lord had another inmate waiting on, on David. The inmate gave him a new testament. But David, he started to mock the man. He just mocked him and made fun of him. And finally, at the end of his rope, David began to read the Psalms. And one night in his cell, he was reading Psalm 34 when he came to verse 6, and it completely melted his heart. David read these words, This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. David himself now writes about that night. He said, It was at that moment in 1987 that I began to pour my heart out to God. Everything seemed to hit me all at once. The guilt from what I had done, the disgust at what I'd become. Late that night in my cold cell, I got down on my knees and I began to cry to Jesus Christ. I told him that I was sick and tired of doing evil and I asked Jesus to forgive me of all my sins. I spent a good while on my knees praying to him. And when I got up, it felt as if a very heavy but invisible change that had been around me for so many years was broken. A peace flooded over me. I didn't understand what was happening, but in my heart, I just knew that my life was going to be different. Now, 32 years later, the skeptics have been proven wrong. David Berkowitz leads Bible studies to this day, to this day inside the walls of his prison that he's in, a serial killer transformed by the grace of God. He's been up for parole. He wrote to the governor. He told the governor that he didn't want it. He didn't deserve it. David said he deserves to spend the rest of his life in prison, but he also believes the Lord has placed him where he is so that he can reach out to the other prisoners. When people heard that the son of Sam had been transformed by Jesus Christ into the son of hope, they didn't believe it. But you see, that is what God can do. When the Lord touches a life, he can transform monsters into men of God. And I don't know how you respond to stories like this, but I know how the apostle Paul would have. He would have stood up and cheered at this point. He would have stood up and cheered for God's amazing grace. Because just as David Berkowitz was a destroyer of human life, the apostle Paul was also at one time a destroyer of the very church of God. And you see in verse 13, Paul would go on to write, he would say, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul could give testimony about the first Christian who was killed for his faith because Paul was there giving his approval as Stephen was stoned to death. Paul searched high and low looking for Christians to persecute and arrest for their faith. His mission and his passion was to destroy the followers of Jesus Christ. 
But once Paul met Jesus Christ, he knew that it was by God's grace alone that he was saved. And Paul had done everything he could to shut down the advancement of the gospel, but God saved him in spite of himself, in spite of what he'd done. And it is because of this that I believe that Paul knew the message of salvation by God's grace so well. Here's what I'm telling you. People that have experienced grace should be passionate about grace. And it's a shame to the church when we're not. But the message of God's grace, it turns people's stomachs upside down. Why? Because our pride makes it difficult for men to believe that it's not about us. Maybe we don't say the words out loud, but we like to think that God approves of us because we're a little better than someone else. Or maybe we're so good because we go to church. Or maybe we happen to even know the Ten Commandments or we help little old ladies across the street. But the message of salvation by grace through faith is an affront to those who believe that they are good people. It's our sinful pride that is offended by the idea that only God's mercy and grace can save from sin. And that is why I believe people insist that by their good works, they have had a part in their salvation. You and I, believers, we've been showered with the grace and mercy of God, but it's not because of what we've done. It is because God has chosen to demonstrate his love to unworthy people. You know, in the word of God, it is the most broken, most unworthy people that God calls so that he might transform their lives and use them for his glory. And I hope you're one of them that has been transformed by his amazing grace. And I hope you live like it. I hope you live with the liberty that comes into your life because there's only one person that you and I need to live to please. And his name is Jesus. So live in his grace, live for his glory, and live knowing of his great love for you. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.